Shout out to Dr. Fast, who might be listening to this podcast at some point. There's no one way to know ahead of time what sorts of things you want to solve and what sorts of ways to solve it. Therapy degrees don't prepare you for that. Okay. Like a, like a therapy program doesn't prepare you for that. And a really good coach, to, to my understanding, is like someone who just like is as capable of dancing through that ambiguity and uncertainty and complexity of life. You are now tuned to Mr. Durant, the place where you can overhear skilled advisors, mentors, and practitioners talk about their craft. Thank you very much. That's my man. Uh, I'm T. Barnett. Welcome to Any Thoughts On. This is the second episode. And I'm joined today by Damon Sassi. Hey, Damon. Hey, T. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. Recognize this song? I do. This is Gato Must Be Respected. It's a uh, cover of a song from Chrono Trigger, which is a game I loved when I was a kid. Okay. And uh, you, you use it on your podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, my podcast is Rationally Writing. Uh, it's uh, co-hosted by Alexander Wales. Uh, we're both uh, web serial authors, and we like writing in the rational fiction genre. So we, we talk about uh, that a lot on the podcast. Nice. And does that, that kind of work, the podcast... The rational writing, does that have a, a, a bearing on your occupation? Uh, a little bit. So I my main occupation is, is, a, is a therapist, as you know, and uh, my writing sometimes is, well, the, the point of rational fiction in general is to create like a world that's like consistent and a plot that makes sense and is like predictable if you pay attention to like all the details and like the author isn't like cheating in any way. Uh, and one of the ways that authors tend to cheat is like, the characters will solve their problems by, uh, you know, pulling some power out of their ass or, oh, wait, is this a family-friendly podcast? Nah. Okay. Family uh, pulling, pulling some power out of nowhere or just like, you know, like some burst of willpower or, you know, the power of friendship like saves the day in some illegible way. Uh, and national fiction tries to have the characters solve their problems in legible ways that the, the readers can, can learn from. So like problem solving and, and using you know, the methods of rationality, so to speak, is like a big part of a lot of rational fiction. And for myself, because I'm a, a therapist, I, I use, I put not just like rationality stuff in my in my stories, but also I try to convey psychology knowledge and like therapy knowledge when the characters go through hard things and they and they use some like um, self-help techniques or go to a therapist themselves. I want to do something in the story that the readers can, can read and then learn from and apply to their own life, even if they never go to a therapist. So that's kind of the way that my, my work kind of connects to my writing. Oh, that is so cool. Do you actually have a, an episode on your podcast where you talk about how your work connects to the writing? Like, have you ever traced that out? Um, we occasionally review stories um, in, in the episode, instead of just talking about the genre, like what writing the genre is like, and we occasionally have guest stars on to talk about their work uh, or talk about some, some topic with us. Uh, and uh, I think I've done one episode that was on like my story up to that point, which was a few years ago. So it was like, it's like, mm roughly half the story currently. Uh, I don't think I talked about uh, this that explicitly as like a major part of it, but it's probably come up a few times on the podcast at least. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Okay, so so you mentioned being a therapist. Can you tell mm -hmm. me a bit a bit more about the type of therapy and, and all of that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I graduated 10 years ago from a marriage and family therapy degree, and uh, marriage and family therapy is kind of the... Uh, marketing term for systemic therapy. It's the type of therapy that's about looking at your problems through the systems that you're part of. So this can be your family system, your friend system, school system, the culture that you're in, the way these different systems like bump up against each other or intersect in, in ways that might cause problems for you. Uh, and also ways that you can find solutions and, and um, 
find resources within those systems that you're part of and examining behavior as as the uh what's the value of the of the behavior to the system that you're part of what what keeps it uh in place that's very cool i like that i have people that come into coaching thinking that it's going to be all kind of self-focused and so sort of how do you I mean in in our circles we call it, they call it debugging how do you sort mm-hmm. of just adjust or shift things within yourself in order to bring yourself to do things that you want to do or something but it's really a lot more expansive and interconnected in that it sounds like that you're saying for that that kind of therapy yeah yeah and i mean we see we see individuals all the time too and and still like along with you know talking about their their past or talking about what their internal experience is like uh, just the value of being able to talk about the the system, as you said, like the the ways that their environment or people around them can can affect the the behavior or be resources for debugging is very valuable. That's very cool. Well, that could be a, an entirely different episode, but <laughs> we're we're introing the episode we already recorded before, which was primarily touching on two questions. The first was, how do you know it's going well with a a practitioner you're working with? That can be a therapist, a coach whomever, and I introduced a, a three-part model, which you, you commented on, you might remember. Mm-hmm. And the second question was, how much does it make sense to pay for this type of thing? And we kind of love therapy and coaching together. I think we mostly just mm-hmm. talked about therapy because you're speaking from from that angle. But that's some of the stuff we cover in, in the episode today. So I will transition. Sounds good. All right. You want to start? Sure, let's go. Okay, so maybe I'll introduce the model first. And I, I don't know whether this will be a voice, like if I re-record it to introduce it again or whether I'll just keep this or something. Sure. Didn't I have a fourth point? No. Only three. It's meant to be pretty simple in terms of helping people get a sense of whether working with a practitioner is working, like yeah. how it's going. Yeah. And I guess we could talk about at what point to even think about this kind of thing do you do it after the first session? Do you do it before you start? Do you do it after however many mm-hmm. sessions, whatever? So that's one thing. And the three-part model is first, do you have optimism or hope that you can get something from the experience that you want? Mm-hmm. And optimism and hope, I feel like, are a little bit different in, in the sense, but, you know, close enough that I kind of do optimism slash hope. Mm-hmm. But a person feeling like they independent of other things are getting encouraging signs that this thing that they're doing with the therapist or the coach or whatever. You can speak, I suppose, on behalf of of therapists for now, Uh Uh, whereas I try to stay away from that most of the time because of legal entanglements or whatever. So I just say, you know, whoever is acting like a a quote-unquote guide or a mentor or something. The second being emotional resonance. So was the experience moving in a way that... You know, one one great indicator of the resonance is whether it was like surprising to someone, right. but also it could be move, moving like predictable but cathartic, mm. different different types of emotional yep. resonance. And then the third is reasonable expectations or progression. So I guess this can connect with the the points about like how long should you wait before even thinking these dimensions, and and yeah. I'm trying to get a sense. I mean. Obviously, we're all sort of tracking that as we're going along in in these relationships. But point three would be would be something like you could have your own internal standard of what is reasonable to expect after a certain amount of time. But you could also, if there's some kind of like specialist that you're seeing and they say something like, you know, it could take this amount of time for you to see results or whatever. Right. 
in this area, then that could be something to, to listen to instead of cutting it short or something like that. Yeah. Which is also needing to be careful about that because a lot of people say a lot of things. Yeah. But can be good to have like reasonable expectations across them. So I'm wondering what you think of those three, basically, whether you would add dimensions. I mean, this is a cluster of questions. Yeah. Like, yeah. Any thoughts on any of these three? They're interesting to you or whether you'd like add another dimension or something. Yeah. So optimism hope is really, uh, does seem like really important. There's a way in which people can come into therapy having basically no expectation or hope that things might be better, especially because I've seen, I used to see clients that were uh, court ordered when I was starting out. Uh, okay. So like people who had like drug offenses or anger management. Uh, oh, that'd be so things. tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get people in the room who very clearly don't want to be there, right? And like there's nothing that I can say that when in the first session that's going to make them feel hopeful, especially if they don't want to change the thing that they're there for. Like I had a, I had a teenager who was just like, look, man, like straight up first session, I really appreciate it. He was like, look, man, I don't want to be here. You're not going to do anything that's going to change my mind about smoking pot and selling weed. So like, you know, just wanted to let you know that up front. And I was like, hey, I also, also, like, just want to let you know, I appreciate that. I don't really have, like, a vested interest in changing your mind about these things. You have to be here anyway. You know, it's my job to be here anyway. Let's just talk about whatever you want to talk about. And, like, if this comes up, great. If not, you know, at least it won't be a total waste of your time. Yeah. He seemed to appreciate that. He spent, like, three or four sessions just, like, talking about whatever was going on in his life. And eventually we got around to the question of, like, okay, well, if you're not going to stop smoking pot and stop smelling, stop selling weed, this was back in... 2011, no, 2012-ish or so. Mm-hmm. I was just doing, I was still doing my internship um, in the in my college. And it was like, it was like, you know, if you're not going to stop doing these things, and I'm not going like, to force you to stop, whatever, uh, how do you at least avoid getting ending up back in front of the, the, the judge, right? Like, what else is going on in your life that might, like, be causing this? And, you know, you turn around about where you get to it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would say this is a, a situation of someone who, like, came into the session with no optimism slash hope, right? It wasn't like they were thinking, like, I'm coming in here to change my life or change anything about myself. Uh, but it doesn't mean we couldn't, like, do good work mm-hmm. in, like, other aspects of their life and then eventually even on the thing that brought them there in the first place. Uh, and you see this sometimes with, with couples also. Like, some one of the people's there with, like, because their partner brought them, basically. They didn't really feel like it was much open thing. And, like, not, not this happens very often, but once in a while. Mm-hmm. So I think it is really important for that to to be there I don't think it's necessary every time. It can be the kind of thing that like grows in the course of a few sessions, but without it, sustainably without it, like it feels like, yeah, I mean, they're just going to stop coming. I feel like a thing, so if this is angled at people who are trying to make decisions Mm -hmm. about who they're seeking, Mm -hmm. although that is just a kind of frame, right? Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting about what you're saying is that they could be surprised by how useful this type of work can be, even if it's outside of what they were intending to get help with. For sure, for sure. There's, there's people who who start therapy because they've heard a bunch of people talk about therapy, uh, and they're like, okay, well, I guess I might as well try a, a session or two. Or like, they heard a therapist was really good, so they decided to try it after getting like a referral to them by a friend. And like, it's it's often the case that sometimes people will be surprised by how effective therapy is for them. This is particularly true for people who've had really bad experiences with therapists, which a lot of people unfortunately have. And then they're like, something keeps them going, something keeps them trying different therapists until they find one that like is surprisingly useful to them or valuable to them. And they're like, oh, this is like actually the thing that I loved it or mm. whatever. And that can be very different for different people. Uh, so one of the things that that like research into um, the effectiveness of therapy has shown is that meeting the client where they are and having the right frame 
for, for like what the mechanism of change looks like is really important. Mm. Uh, and this can mean anything from like using technical, scientific, rational words and concepts uh, for clients who are really into that. And it can mean having more of a like fuzzy, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, like um, frame for people who are more into that. Right. Whatever, like as long as the client can identify something in what you're talking about that feels meaningfully like a path to change for them, it's kind of really important to them. Uh, so there's some element of this that is uh, frame dependent and, and like hope, hope from them, optimism from them is like what matters. It's not like for you to, to tell them, hey, this is really going to work for you. Right. It's like some, some element of that, like being competent and all that. But yeah. So when, when they're searching from therapist to therapist mm -hmm. and they haven't found what they wanted, something's keeping them going. Yeah. Say. If, if, yeah. If they're, if they're continuing. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, it could be a lot of things, but presumably it could be they've gotten glimpses of hope that they can grow along dimensions that they didn't expect. Or I'm guessing maybe it could also be that they made some progress in the object level thing that they care about but that it's not quite gone all the way or they've kind of like capped out with certain therapists or something. Yeah, or they literally just have no idea what else to do. Like it's like if, if, like if it's really just like they are at the end of their rope and they just want to, they, they just feel like they need to try something. It feels hard to call that hope exactly, but it is, I think, still. If, mm -hmm. they're, if they're still like, you can be really depressed, really defeated, feel really um, hopeless in some sense. But the fact that they showed up to therapy at all to me this is my lens. Like, if a client shows up to therapy, my intrinsic belief is that they want to change, they, 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 and they hope and they're hopeful that they can. Mm. So, if someone shows up to therapy and they don't really know why they're there, mm -hmm. they just have like a vague sense that they need to be helped. Mm -hmm. Is this the kind of intention that they bring that actually tends to work out in terms of your? Your client base because for me for coaching it can go either way mm -hmm. so it's usually about 50 50 maybe worse odds if i encounter a person who just shows up mm -hmm. and they don't have a good sense of what they want to work on mm -hmm. they don't have like a sharp intention for what to do mm -hmm. and then for the ones that do i tend to find that 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 goes better but yeah. maybe therapy is a lot different just because they're like i'm hurting it's more on the axis of like something is wrong. I don't know what it is. So I'm like showing up to for you to tell me a bit more about how to deal with this. Yeah. Whereas coaching might be a bit different in that respect. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I don't want to speak too much for, for other therapists, but from my experience, in many ways it's really helpful to have that sense of like what does the client want to work on? What what feels like the thing that they, they want to change in their life or grow in or something. And that can be really useful. But like I'm not gonna pretend also that like just because that's something they brought in with them, I can still help them. Like there are many times the client knows exactly what they want to work on or exactly what's going wrong with them. And I just haven't had the tools or the skill or whatever, like the insights to be able to help them figure it out. And that sucks. Like, and I, mean, I, I always, you know, feel like that's, that's like the, the, the edge, the edges of my growth as a therapist sometimes is finding those clients who like really know what they want and, and how they want to, and what they want to do and me just not being able to help them get there. That feels like a really clear sign that like, ah, there's something I'm, I'm I don't know yet. I'm still missing. On the other side of this is, like you said, like people who kind of just like something's wrong. I don't really know what. I don't feel good about my life. I don't you know really know what to do. And sometimes I can still help them by actually helping figure like figure out that process, which is more of like a philosophical yeah take. Sometimes like but sometimes it requires digging into more like non therapeutic frames uh, first to figure out what sorts of things are bothering them. Yeah. There are people out there I think call themselves philosophical coaches or something, philosophy coaches or philosophy yeah. therapists or something like that. 
Uh, and I think what they do is essentially it is like, you know, they, they use a philosophical framework to help people find meaning in their life or, or see what's going wrong with their moral decisions if they feel wrong about those. Uh, and some of that comes up in therapy once in a while when people have like a vague sense that something is wrong where they don't really know what they what they want. So that, that's a thing that can happen to you and it can still be, I can still find some way to help them, which is, yeah, it feels like it's, I don't know actually like off the top of my head whether like it's, I'm like more likely to help people who have a very specific thing. Like my guess is yes, probably. But I don't think it's significantly worse if they have a vague sense that something goes wrong. Because it's usually, in my experience, not too hard to find uh, handles to work in where to those vague senses of like why something is wrong. It's like kind of the basic dysfunctional checks. Like is your sleeping off? Is your social life off? Is your work off? Is your love life off? Like what, what feels wrong in your life exactly? Is it just some sense of ennui that you have in your life because everything seems good but you feel like it's meaningless? In which case it's you know more like a philosophical thing we have to dig into. Yeah. I feel like sometimes I get people who show up and they don't even have, and I like, mm. they're not able to introspect on their own experience. I don't know. And they'll show up and want to improve things, and then you will try to get those handles, and they'll sort of be like, "Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, about any of that." And then the task, like the thing that that hinges on, I think, is them being able to report on their inner life or their inner experience. Which I don't think is a given. It's like, yeah. I think you you probably have encountered people have like varying yeah, yeah. abilities to do that and then attribute, you know, certain outcomes in their life or the like conditions of their life to that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you've had that experience of like trying to teach someone the foundations of yeah. noticing their own experience. Yeah, this is particularly true um, in my early years when I was working in, in local communities in, in Miami-Dade County and Broward County. Where there was just like, yeah, there were a lot of people who, for lack of a better phrase, like they're just kind of, like they're just going about their day, like their day-to-day -day life. Something bad happens to them or their family member or something like that. They end up in therapy because they were connected to therapy resources by whatever social services that happened to them. So they were there when something happened to them and they were through years worth of shot. And like, this is kind of the first opportunity in their lifetime really, really introspecting on their feelings and thoughts for many of them was like ever done. And it's just like, really like even even something I would consider very like basic mindfulness breathing exercises can be very transformative for some of these people because it's like, I can actually just sit here with my thoughts and like examine them and notice myself breathing. And this is like, mm -hmm. it's really surprising seeing sometimes how how much those kinds of basic things can be taken for granted by people who've do, been doing them for years and are used to introspecting overall. Like and our introspective types, but yeah, there are definitely people who will show up to therapy who, who they kind of need the basic building blocks, like you said, of like. What does it mean to even like notice what you're feeling in this moment? What does it mean to even like notice something in your body that is like corresponding to an experience you're having as opposed to just saying something feels well? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it, it occurs to me that I never, there's never been a recorded portion here mm -hmm. where you kind of like quickly go over your experience or how you came to be a therapist. Oh, yeah. You want to do that real quick? Sure, sure. So the, the basic answer, I think, is like uh, I was being treated like a therapist by friends and family members since I was like 16. And I was like, okay with it. Like, I was like, this seems fine. <laughs> that's a good indicator. When some people ask me whether they should be a code uh -huh. therapist, I say like, that's, it's like a very loose one, but it's actually like pretty, pretty good. Yeah. People have been doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I was interested in psychology since I started, I took a psychology class in 11th grade. Mm -hmm. So 17. And I was like fascinated by people and, and brains and how we think the way we do and why we think the way we do. And the fact that our brains might be lying to us and all these different ways that like visual illusions and stuff can show us. And yeah, I wanted to be a writer before then, but I kind of knew that like being a writer full-time is like a hard thing to do. I mm -hmm. probably should find a job otherwise. And once I took that psychology class, I liked it actually so much that I 
uh, and in my senior year, I just kind of skipped one of my classes half the time and just went back to the same class by the same teacher. And he was, he was great. Uh, Dr. Fast uh, uh, was just a fantastic psychology teacher and, and just really cool guy all around. And yeah, once I took my undergrad and said, you spell the last name? F-A-S-S. Shout out to Dr. Fast, <laughs> who might be listening to this podcast at some point. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I really, like, realized, like, okay, this is a thing that I could spend a lot of my time thinking about, not just, like, books and writing and fiction. Uh, I think the same connecting things. Like, it's books to me are about people. Like, plots are interesting, settings are interesting, world building is fun, but, like, the people, the characters are the really cool thing. Like, getting inside someone else's perspective and, and their feelings and their experiences. And so when I took my psychology undergrad, honestly, it was kind of useless, I would say. It was mostly, like, Here's a sample set of like a bunch of different fields of psychology. And some of them were interesting and some of them were like a little bit useful, but for the most part, it was like not really deep into any of them and it was not really any like learnable skills. What do you feel like it was meant to do? I think what it was meant to do realistically is tell you, hey, if you want to study psychology really, like here's the different yeah, buildings. Yeah. And this is like my optimistic take. And, what to, yeah, what the, what and it's not super useful to just do this. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, the undergrad, the psychology undergrad, like maybe you could be a research assistant because there were free research courses, but like I don't really know what else you could do with that with that degree overall. That would be psychology related. But yeah, it, it did give me some perspectives on different things I could do. Forensic psychology was super interesting to me. And it's about like, you know, court cases and like witness testimony and, and all this different stuff. And sometimes like FBI profiling for police investigations and things like this. And like that kind of thing was interesting. But also, it felt like this was way before I knew anything about EA. Uh, I was also just felt like it wasn't potentially very impactful. Like best case scenario, you're like a you know a expert witness testimony person, and it's like it just doesn't seem very very uh, valuable overall. Mm -hmm. I was interested a little bit in research, but honestly, I feel like I just didn't have the skill to be a great researcher. Maybe I'd just be like a good researcher or something. So I was like, yeah, the therapy thing still felt good. Like it still felt good talking to people about their problems. Still felt good. Like helping them if I could. And I was like, I should probably make sure I'm actually good at this if I'm going to keep doing this. Like, I want to make sure I'm not, like, messing people up or something. Yeah, so I took a graduate program in master marriage and family therapy, which is the kind of marketing term for systemic therapy. And that was fantastic. Like, every class was really good. Uh, all my professors were great. I really enjoyed the program. Um, it was, like, it's a very stark contrast to my psychology undergrad, where, like, most of the classes felt kind of interesting but, but useless. It felt like every class was just really valuable and like learning useful skills and perspectives and things. Mm. Yeah, and then I did I did my internship you know, at the Grief Therapy Institute, which was on the campus, and then I did my externship with like local schools around around the county. And I was like, yeah, this feels good. I want to keep doing this. So once I graduated, I went for working locally to get my license. Mm. And was there just because of getting feedback mm -hmm. from from clients is so important? Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if they had like robust ways of doing that at the time. Or if they emphasize that a lot, as you were, as you said, it felt good. But I'm wondering yeah, if you like issued point. surveys and things like that. Yeah. So for the Brief Therapy Institute, we definitely had um, exit paperwork, basically. Yeah. Uh, which is somewhat useful. It's not as good as like having a session to session feedback, but it's somewhat useful to just have as a as a way to like now like, you know, did you help this person? If so, how much and why and all that kind of stuff. Also, yeah, there was a sense in which it seemed like my effectiveness was like very obvious by contrast or something. What I mean by that is something like there were certain clients it seemed like I was able to connect with and help that was like my my colleagues were struggling with. And that seemed very obviously like a thing that was like a sign of something that I wasn't sure like I wasn't sure how it would be measured on like a, a sheet other than like the, the basics the basics of like do you feel connected to your therapist? Do you feel like your care, therapist cares about you? Uh would did your therapist have like useful insights? Like these are like things you could ask people. But the immediate feedback thing that seemed really valuable was like there are some clients who just didn't seem like they were 
connected with anyone and then like mm-hmm. they were engaged with everyone when i was in the room and this was mostly like i would say younger clients for one thing was like a major thing like just honestly just being an adult who treats children like uh, like people is like a huge benefit as even a, even among therapists yeah yeah i'm even trying not to bad mouth therapy as a as profession a therapist as a whole uh, too much here but like you would be surprised i think how many therapists like don't know how to be non-patronizing to kids i mean clients in general maybe but kids in particular mm. and yeah this is why i think one of my metrics for what a good therapist is is like it's so domain specific there's some some therapists who are probably great therapists for adults which is terrible for kids right uh and terrible for teenagers and i don't know how much they know this i don't think many of them do but like maybe they like vaguely know they don't like working with kids or something hopefully but yeah so that was a big thing and then another thing was just like being able to just like help a certain kind of client who was more for lack of a better word, and I'll let us about their, their, their issues and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. I have a lot I want to ask, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering I'm wondering if we want to go back to to the main thing. Sure. I'm wondering if you feel like the optimism hope dimension seems like we, we've talked through or you've you've said what you wanted to say on on that point. It seems like a thing that I'm I might have taken from what you were saying is that the optimism and hope doesn't always just get generated from the relationship with the therapist. Mm-hmm. It's some combination of what the person is is bringing regarding like what they hope this thing can do, even vaguely, mm-hmm. and then maybe some feedback that they get from people that they encounter, even if it doesn't go very well, well yeah. even if it go doesn't go the way that they thought. It's like some combination of those things is just enough to get that person going or to keep them going sorry and then i'm also wondering in the case of a person who is you know feeling like it's going pretty well but they feel like it's a pretty big monetary commitment or they're not sure whether they you know i guess i guess a good question is like how many sessions generally you found is a good time to think about this kind of thing and then for people in this position like what what might they want to think about yeah, I try not to be too... So sometimes I used to be more specific about this and then like I've gotten feedback from other therapists that like this is sometimes sits... I'll, I, like I want to be I want to be careful with this kind of thing. But like it, so the thing that I used to say very... The thing I used to say more confidently than I currently would say is something like uh, if you don't feel hopeful about therapy or like, like something like, like you've gotten some value out of therapy by like the fourth session, you should probably stop and like find another therapist. I still feel like I kind of believe this. I think it's it's fair to say that there's like maybe a slower process for some people versus others, and certain problems versus others for sure. But I certainly would feel, as a therapist, like like I am failing in some way if by the fourth session or fifth session or whatever the client does not feel like something new, something different is, is right. Like there's something they're looking forward to for the next session, uh, and that's happened to me before. And I felt it feels bad. It feels bad. It feels bad when I, like after a few sessions I feel like oh, no, I don't I don't know if I'm helping this person. I don't know if they're feeling helped at all. It happens to me too. Yeah. Um, and I, I often, at, at about four or five, it's yeah. funny that you say that, it's about right for me yeah. as well. And at about that time, if they don't, well, we, I try to have like a bit of a meta conversation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. either extend one session or see if they're okay with spending some part of the session talking about it. Yeah. And if they feel nothing, you know, like nothing in particular that's been helpful, I will recommend that they, you know, go find mm-hmm. somebody else potentially, mm-hmm. unless there's just enough hope that they they would like to continue to see, but usually after four or five, if if nothing's mm. really you know appealing to them, then yeah. 
sometimes I'll be feeling that, but they'll say, oh, no, I think you know, this was a useful, this was a useful thing. Like, it does feel... So what do you do in that case? Like, in that case, I'm just like, okay, uh, let's, you know, let me try leaning more into the things that they find useful as opposed to the things that they don't or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes that's mysterious to me, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, sometimes I get the sense that some people are like, things are getting transmitted that I don't, that I don't know what they are. Yeah, I, I had a client, actually, who I think explicitly, and, and, and I'm grateful how explicit this was for them, explicitly was like, look, I don't want the traditional therapy experience here. I want to just kind of have this space as a place for me to talk about my experiences, what I'm going through, process my thoughts and feelings and stuff like that. And and they kind of just wanted me to literally just be the person who is like reflecting back what they think to them, showing if I understand it, maybe asking a few questions here and there, but not assigning like any kind of homework, not assigning any kind of like, have you tried this or like these kind of intervention kind of stuff, none of that. They just wanted the very like stereotypical perspective of what therapy is, right? Just like very much just the person listening to you and like asking how you, how you feel about that and reflecting back and stuff like this. Uh, and this was hard for me as a therapist because I, I am like, yeah, after a certain, if I don't, if I feel like we're kind of like chewing over the same thing over and over again, uh, I, I get intellectually why this might be progress for some people to be able to do this in, in a safe environment and stuff like that. But it feels like the thing that I want is like, to show them something new, to help them in some way. This is like my ego as a therapist that's like in the way of like clients like this, right? And so it was really useful for this client to say that because it was able to help us like align and realign and realign every so often, like every few sessions of like, hey, how's this feeling for you? Is this seem good kind of thing? And every time I had that impulse of like, oh, I could like maybe this intervention would be useful. This was like, no, no, they said, they said this isn't the kind of thing they wanted. We check, I'll check in like in a couple sessions to see if that's still true. But for now it's like, let me just make sure I'm here for them in, in the way that they want me to be here for them. That was hard for me. Like, that was hard for me as a therapist to do that because of the way I've been trained. But for some therapists, that might be super easy because, like, mm. for them, it's like, sure, yeah, I'm just here to listen. There's you know, no need for specific skills for you to learn, no need for any kind of treatment plan, whatever. We're just, we'll just talk into this, tired of talking. Uh, yeah. So that's an interesting philosophical backdrop yeah. because, because when I'm in a position like that in coaching, I'm also thinking of the dynamic or the interaction as as me also getting something from this mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. which is wanting to help people in various ways but that those ways have hallmarks of a particular kind of growth like yeah. n- like new discovery of things as you say or something so like i've i've encountered some clients who are like happy to keep showing up and kind of giving me money mm-hmm. and i don't really know why because I, because because it doesn't really yeah. seem like we're 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 treading new ground or doing anything that's really helpful for them, and then you could have a stance of like, well, whatever they seem to want and is useful for them, mm-hmm. is going to be the pathway forward to like success in my practice, mm-hmm. and then some people probably have like a much more rigid sense of, here's what I want to be doing day in day out in my practice, the types of like intervention moves I want to do and the progress I want to see from people. And I'd say that like for me, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle of those two where I think often the pathway to getting people to grow in the ways that I'm conceiving of is through their own means and via. Yeah, yeah, Tris. But I also feel like there can be a, a sense in which like a therapist or a coach can be aiding and abetting like a version of some kind or like non-growth or like insulating themselves from from certain realities that maybe you see and you keep seeing because they keep like recounting stuff. Yeah. And that is helpful for you, but you keep being like, oh my God, 
you know, you're on this, you're at this local maximum and I could point this thing out to you or you could, you know, notice your breathing or introspect better or something like that. And yeah, I, I'm wondering if you, if you wrestle with some of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've changed therapy jobs of some kind every two to three years roughly. I worked in first in, in the local clinic, like I mentioned at, this, at the university, then I worked in schools. Uh, then I worked in like local uh, low-income family um, situation where like there was like government money to help people who couldn't afford therapy around the community. Uh, they did like marriage and family therapy for a while. Then I did uh, couples counseling. Then I did individual counseling. Uh, and I did crisis work, which is like driving around the county when everyone, someone was like psychosis, suicidal, homicidal, whatever, whatever was going on with them, and like trying to deescalate and, and connect them to services, which was very different because it was just like one-off, not instead of ongoing therapy. So like every few years, I, I feel like I, I kind of like reached like an edge of some kind. Learn that most like 80, 20, what I can learn from that kind of thing and, and feel kind of antsy to try something new. And so when I shifted to working in private practice for the first like year or so, I was working, yeah, I started working with rationalists and years specifically. And it was like completely new clientele for me. It was also a completely new context for me. It was like private practice for the first time. I'd done some private practice work a little bit while I was still at the clinic, uh, but it was like on the, on the side kind of thing. And I was still making mistakes of, of a new kind because it was a new thing for me. And one of those was like, like feeling like, there was a client, for example, that I had who was like explicitly like, hey, you know, does it feel okay if we just kind of keep talking past a certain point of like where it's like not necessarily something, is it okay if we just kind of talk every so often about like what's going on in my life and not, and not with anything necessarily to solve. And like looking back, I can be like, oh man, I really should have just been like, yeah, if that, if that works for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time I was so worried about like, no, like if, you know, if it feels to me like what's best is like if you, if you have something that you want to work on, we'll work on that. And then like, Hopefully that'll be like resolved. And it's like, you know, I'm not like going to rush you out the door or anything, but if it doesn't feel like there's anything really to talk about, you know, come back when there is or something like that. I didn't say it in those words, but I kind of, I said, I, I think I gave the impression of something like, like I'm not here to be like a paid for friend or something. Right. right? And like, I still feel, I still do feel like. Yeah. And to be honest, that's part, that's sometimes how I feel. Yeah. And I, mean, I do feel like I'm not supposed to be a paid for friend. And that, that seems like, like a bad frame to be in. If I, if, if, if I feel like I am this person's, way of having a friend that they can't otherwise feel like they have because they but, but they can like pay for it or something it's like there's ways that can cross boundaries and like not be really good but at the same time some people are in certain positions such that it's hard for them to talk about certain things with people around them and in that kind of frame also like it's like the thing that they need actually isn't a therapist in the traditional model or whatever my concept of the traditional model is what they need is someone who can be a therapist for them in a model that's useful to them and that's really the thing that's really important to me it's like what what does therapy look like philosophically? It can be very different from these different, you know, when you're a psychoanalytic therapist or behavioral therapist or existential therapist or systemic therapist. These are very different models for what therapy is for and how it can help people. And I imagine there's like even more different philosophies for coaching. Like there's like all these different ideas of what coaching is supposed to be and should be and stuff like that. And uh, I think like the basic rule that I've forgotten now and then that I'm trying to remind myself of is like, be what the, the client needs. Uh, like yeah. be, be what the client wants you to be but also be what the client needs. And like that, sometimes that can be a little bit in contention if what they want really is like a paid for a friend. And like in those circumstances, my idea would be like, okay, let's try to find ways to get you the resources and social support that you need in your life so you don't need to pay someone to do it. Yeah. And this dovetails, this dovetails a bit with the hope, but this is sort of speaking from practitioner side, which is like being what they want can be an on-ramp into being what they need. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes for me, I need to see hope that, the way they initially want to construct the relationship is going mm-hmm. to end up, you know, over time being a thing that turns into something that we both agree is mm-hmm. what they need. And so sometimes, yeah, I, I have no problem like 
extending over the the territory that I otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Um, if I feel like they they just sort of need to warm up in some mm-hmm. like that's a very simple way of putting it, but like yeah. they need to build rapport before they kind of True. go deeper. Absolutely. And I feel like that's also like one one way to do that. Yeah. 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 I usually do like a twenty minute free like orientation call or something where I say, you know, what what would ending therapy look like for you such that you would feel either like what would have to be different in your life such that you would feel like, okay, it's time to like skip a session every every so often or like take a month off and see how I feel or something like that. Like what would have to be different in your life to get to the point? Not like 100% everything's great, but more like you feel like you're on the path. Good question. And it's a really useful question for a lot of people yeah. to, to get to that, to, that, to that stage. And I think it's really valuable to know that, to keep that in mind when you're working with a, with a, a guy of some, of some kind. Like what, what, does, what does success even look like for you? And for people who don't know what that looks like, that's like the first thing that I'm just like, okay, let's figure that out. Like what, is, what, is, what does a good life for you feel like or look like? What is it, like if it's, would you know something different in the morning as soon as you get out of bed? Would you know something different around lunchtime? Would you know something different, you know, on like a week-long scale because of the things we're doing on a week-long scale instead of a daily scale? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And it it makes me ask myself why I don't ask a question like that in an, in an introductory call. And I think it's because if I were to just sort of introspect on the spot about this, mm-hmm. it's probably that I feel like the, the outcomes of what we're doing is so variable. Yeah, yeah that they they won't even realize what the value of it, it is of it until session four or five or something like that. And it will be very different than what they thought in the beginning. So yeah. I had one client who said, maybe you should consider in your feedback, your feedback survey or something, asking a question like, what would I tell myself about this coaching now if I were to go back to myself in the beginning uh, and kind of give myself advice about it? Mm-hmm. Which I think is a badass way to elicit what they think is different about what they thought, you know, in the mm-hmm. beginning. And to me, I guess I believe that it's so, it would be good to ask a question like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like taking that and tucking it away. Sure, yeah, I'll use it. And then also it's just, it just strikes me that a lot of people stick with the coaching often because it goes beyond what they originally thought. Yeah, this well, kind of one of the things I've said before, I think is that Insofar as the difference between therapy and coaching is like outside of the difference between like mental health issues, quote unquote, and or emotional health issues, quote unquote, and like other things in, in people's life. It feels like therapy usually is, is geared towards taking someone from unhealth to health. Right. And and coaching is, is geared towards taking someone from health to flourishing. And like it can look very different for different people and be kind of outside the box in the perspective, whereas like health, quote unquote, is like more yeah. standardizable. It's like not actually standard, but it's standardizable in some way. Like you can, like I said, like you can check like, are you sleeping okay? Are you satisfied with your social life? Are you, you know, you, are you happy day to day, like in some scale of what happiness might be, mean to them? And people usually, I think, come to therapy more with a sense of like something is wrong that they want to fix. So they're stuck in some way. Whereas I can imagine people go to coaching more likely with like, they want things to be better, but like like you said, like it's hard to know exactly ahead of time what that looks like. I remember this frame and you gave this to me like six months ago or a year ago, whenever we met or whatever. And I've been thinking about it more and and the way I relate to it, it, it is sometimes like, you know, therapy is unhealth to health and then, you know, health to thriving is coaching. And then for me, sometimes I feel like it's getting people to see that they are unhealthy or that they are like, limiting themselves and their perception quite a bit and then like going beyond that into what what could be thriving yeah yeah so i think a lot of people just it's like the like frog in boiling water they just like don't Mm. get the degree to which a lot of their perceptive faculties or like constructs or whatever are making it hard for for sure and making them loop and and all kinds of yeah getting when when somebody is stuck in some way in their life i mean I, i have a personal philosophy that like 
people can change people and go, it's why I'm a therapist. Why, like, like, I believe it. I, I genuinely believe people can do these things. And sometimes we get stuck and sometimes people can help us get unstuck. And, and I think good therapy should be able to help people thrive as well and flourish. And good coaches should be able to help people with unhealth too, because it's like, it's kind of just like, there's no one specific thing right. that in, any, in anyone, in anyone's life or any set of people's life or any process, it's like some combination of all these different factors that we, that we kind of have to work with all at once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm wondering whether there are any of these two dimensions that could be worth addressing on this model of one, hope slash optimism, two, emotional resonance, and three, reasonable expectations or, or progression. I'm curious about, we were kind of like veering into the difference between coaching and therapy territory. And I heard one really great, like highly esoteric definition that I wanted to get your take on. Okay. Okay. So... One of the boundaries, I might have told you this before, but one of the boundaries is something like when you help people see their shadow sides. And for people who are listening to this that don't know what that is, I suppose that's like disowned parts of yourself or thoughts that you have or like ways that you are that you don't want to acknowledge or seem bad or unhealthy or something like that is that like a fair fairish definition of of shadow side and or ones that you just feel like are you're not allowed to let out like even even right part of you might endorse it but you know that no one else is like is like everyone's going to judge it yeah and it's usually suppressed and then therapy and coaching can be helpful Mm -hmm. you know okay so it's it's how acquainted someone is with their shadow sides and what emotional fallout you might they might incur if you help them so let's say we're talking about trauma yeah right like childhood trauma yep the shadow side being like something very disturbing. And if a coach takes them to see that for the first time mm-hmm. or like for, you know, one of the first times, they may have emotional fallout that a coach is just not like trained mm-hmm. to handle or understand, you know, where the, the lines of safety mm-hmm. need to be. Whereas a, a lot of people notice, especially when they do my coaching, it, it is, does resemble therapy. Mm-hmm. And that is because they can take some of their traumas that they've already worked through yeah. or thought through and they've been, become acquainted with them and they bring them into the sessions. And that's really helpful for us to like understand why they're getting triggered when they're getting feedback and management or something like that. Right. Um, so it's not that like those things are off the table, but it's more like what's the likelihood that they will basically get into an unhealthy state upon reaching those. And then it can get really tricky, I guess, if it's not like trauma, but it's like other aspects of themselves that can be jarring if they saw them. And I suppose a coach needs to be really careful and be like, have you done this with a therapist before? Have you looked at it? Do you feel like it's processed? Notice kind of like micro changes in, you know, the, the way that they express as you're walking down this path or something like that to see whether you feel like it could throw them into a bad state. So given, you know, your background that you outlined and how you've actually like spent some years helping people de-escalate, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, how you feel about a dis- like that being one of many distinctions probably between coaching and therapy. Yeah, it feels like like the thing the thing that that therapists ideally and I say this because again, like you might be surprised by how many therapists really can't do this well at all is like be able to hold space with someone who is in crisis and not freak out in one direction or the other. And one freak out could mean something like, oh, I can't handle this. I'm just going to call for emergency services and, and have them be taken away or something. And the other freak out is more like the, 
maybe free cash is the wrong word for it. The other, the other kind of overreaction, I guess, is the like, oh, this is great, this is amazing. I'm so glad that you're you're having this like this like breakthrough or something. Like let's encourage us with like dig into this or something without noticing that like maybe this like this needs to be like managed more like context appropriately or situationally yeah. like that. And that is like a it's not going to pretend this is an easy thing to do because it's very variable based on like circumstances and what brought the, the traumatic experience out. When I was doing crisis work, I was like going to someone in the, like I was driving to someone in the community who was in the middle of a crisis, which I think is slightly is also very different from someone coming to you right. and like having like a, a at least relatively peaceful, hopefully like experience of like closed session where they might be confronting a shadow or, or exile or whatever trauma might be coming up. But yeah, I would say that ideally therapists should be prepared to handle that sort of circumstance, uh, not just during a session, but on any moment. Like if a, therapist, if a client calls you between sessions and they're like in a crisis or messages you in a crisis or something, like as a therapist, like, are you prepared to handle that? Uh, is, is part of what I think the training should help people mm -hmm. with and, and the process of like these ethical guidelines of boundaries and things like that is also really valuable for. So yeah, I think coaches, good coaches could handle things like that quite well, but I don't know exactly how, like I don't think most therapists honestly can do it super well. So I don't mm -hmm. know how, without the training, what how, how easily it's accessible for coaches also yeah yeah and and i think i largely attribute that model to my coach mm -hmm. emily and another one she passed along that i thought was really good i think she probably derived from therapy mm -hmm. is that the worst thing you can do in those situations is as you say like abandon them mm -hmm. in terms of like not holding the space mm -hmm. in terms of yeah not not like at least trying to get them to a spot where they're on level ground yeah even if they're still in a bad state or something yeah. like that. And that's interesting because it comes more natural to me to like stay with someone in that zone, but maybe not to everyone. And maybe they, they just, you know, want to get out of there real quickly or maybe like ascend a little bit too quickly to the surface of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that can, that could be pretty shitty. I would admit. I mean, if, if, if someone's perspective is like, this is really good. Let's dig into this. Uh, and it seems like it's productive. It's not to say it's not productive in the moment, but like it can hit them an hour later, two hours later, a day later uh, in like a circumstance that they're not prepared for and that kind of thing. Like awareness of that kind of thing feels useful for people to, to have when they're when they're helping people through these kinds of circumstances. Right. You, know, you, mean, you mean for the practitioner? To for the practitioner. Okay. I mean the, the client too, for sure. Yeah, but yeah. like for the practitioner to have such that like, I mean, there was some call that would go out on that's like, we were there for like six hours because that's how long it took to get someone to yeah. even place and, and feel safe leaving, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's not something that I think most people are prepared for right. at any given time. Right. Yeah. It sounds to me, if I'm kind of listening between the lines, that the distinction between like a really skilled coach and a really skilled therapist is not a lot yeah. in your in your mind? In, in, in my mind, it's true. The, the actual distinctions is something like training and then like legal safety and, and like boundaries and stuff like that. And that's basically it. Uh, okay. And like the training, I mean, you could, anyone can learn the same things that you would go to school for, where you learn on an exam, right. right? The experiences that you get with other therapists and like practicums and stuff like that is valuable. I don't know how non-transferable that is in outside of these, these contexts. I imagine there's still those kinds of skills that you can learn just from experience uh, with others also, if you like, talk to people's experience and stuff like that. If you feel okay telling me more about this, I'm curious about like, insofar as those seem like roughly equivalent to you, mm -hmm. what is similar or the same about them that you so you're imagining like the highly skilled coach and their ability to handle certain things yeah so like a lot of what i think of therapy as is problem solving and maybe this is like 
a very Western, modern, progressive, whatever you want to call it, like perspective on, on, on therapy. But like, it's like ultimately comes down to problem solving. And because it's such a complex problem, like people's lives could be stuck in so many different ways in so many different contexts, like relationships, intra, intrapersonal experiences with work, experiences with their career, like could be like a very simple thing for them or it could be like all the meaning of it in the world. Like it's everyone's very different on all these axes. And like there's no one way to know ahead of time what sorts of things you want to solve and what sorts of ways to solve it. There's nothing fundamentally unique to the therapy degrees don't prepare you for that. Okay. And like, a, like a therapy program doesn't prepare you for that. What a therapy program does, well, like my experience with therapy programs do is like they give you a philosophy and a model of understanding and the lens of understanding the world that is like, this is a way that we believe it's, we can help people get unstuck and, and solve these kinds of problems. Here's a model that like we think is like generalizable in some way to these kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. And then it's your skill as an individual to adjust the model to the circumstances as it would be best and like apply it as would be best. Some of them are very rigid models, so like this doesn't apply for all of them. I was like to use this philosophy and use this lens to help us figure out what this person's best path towards health would be or something like that. And a really good coach to, to my understanding is like someone who just like, again, is like is as capable of dancing through that ambiguity and uncertainty and complexity of life and finding the stuck spots and finding the ways in which people can like be unsure what to do next and to figure that out together. And like whether you're pulling on a therapeutic model or a world philosophy or a moral philosophy or a spiritual philosophy or you know whatever it is that, that gives someone the framework of understanding why something might be going wrong and how to make it better. Like I have my beliefs about why certain therapeutic models are better than others. And I think there is some truth to some of them. Like there's some actual like, there is some, there is some territory there. Like there are some ways in which the, the brain can respond well to certain things over others. But outside of that, like having an empathetic and trustworthy person that you can talk to about your problems and then like skillfully navigate and like ask the right questions and, and give you the outside view. That to me is like the same, it's the same job in both, in both roles. I don't know if I answered your question. No, I think so. I think so. I like, I think it aligns with a general thought that I have about like the quality of coaching and therapy, which maybe is like a strange, a strange way to even frame that because they're, they're doing different things mm-hmm. as we talked about, but also similar things is that your average coach will probably be worse than your average therapist but a but there's maybe there's like a better mathematical way to say this but like the upper bounds for really good therapists are kind of constrained maybe because they adhere to more rigid models than a coaches so like then you have the really really skilled top tier coaches that probably are not really wedded to any particular model. Mm-hmm. They're probably pulling from a lot of different domains and they fashion these very highly personalized tools. And like that to me seems like a, a really, really skillful way of relating to people and the ambiguity and solving problems in a way that maybe a lot of therapists feel hamstrung or don't even know that they're kind of like, you know, boxed in by being yeah. trained in something. This is my map to be clear. Like I, yeah. I have a perspective in which I think therapeutic modalities are useful tools and perspectives and lenses. And realistically speaking, yeah, let me back up a second and kind of talk about what I, what I, when I say, I have a post on my website called Bad Therapist. And like the thing that I, that I find useful to, to disambiguate is something like a really bad therapist is someone who can't help anyone. Like the worst therapist is someone who can't help anyone, if not actually makes things worse, which unfortunately many therapists do fairly often. Hmm. How? Can it, one quick example? Oh, I mean, like, if you go to your therapist and you're like, here's this kind of shameful thing that I've been feeling, I'm not sure what to do with it or something. 
and your therapist is like, oh yeah, that's terrible. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like being judgmental, being yeah. uh, dismissive, like all these kinds of very casual ways that therapists have traditionally in many cultures and continue to today, just like make people feel less worried, less seen. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I, I've heard that some people two or three times have been like, yeah, my therapist, uh, because I made a decision that they that's counter what, to what mm-hmm. they recommended, they cut me off. Yeah, yeah. I was, then, wow, I can't imagine that happening unless it was like, and it wasn't the kind of decision like that would be bad, you know, harmful for themselves and others. It was the kind of decision like, I'm giving you life recommendation, oh, yeah. life this, advice. Yeah, yeah. This like, the therapist model, and you traditionally has this idea of resistance from the from the client. So if you if you suggest something to the client, and they don't want to do it. The client now is resistant to the treatment, and this is like a thing that some therapists just like. This is just what they believe, right? Like, a, that's interesting. Okay, so so that's a way it can be made worse. So there are ways that therapists can make people worse, and that sucks. And there's ways that therapists can just not help people, and that sucks. But the range of kinds of problems and people that a therapist can can deal with is my mark of what makes like a really great therapist as opposed to just like a good one. Because like a good therapist might be really good at working with like, you know, abuse victims uh, or like children uh, who've gone through trauma or like career advice and some some combination of these two or three things. Uh, but then really bad when it comes to like dealing with people who are, for example, like struggling with sexuality or gender or something. And again, hopefully the therapist knows that about themselves and like is like aware of these biases or difficulties with this kind of thing or whatever and doesn't make that problem worse. But like many often, often the case, I think that like a lot of therapists are like, they're good for two or three different kinds of things with different populations, but they're not in general, what I would consider generally good therapists. Uh, And those are rare, but like that is, to my understanding, something that requires them to not be a certain philosophy or model. They have to have this meta view of like, what are we? What we're doing here is a complex, vague process that we have tools for and lenses for, and some some hopeful, hopefully basic science, neuroscience understanding that might be useful. But all these things are just like different ways to help people. It, like there's like a range of people that I could help, and I want to expand that range as much as possible. Right, right. And everything that I learned is is like hopefully just like increasing the ability of me from from I have to help more different kinds of people with different kinds of problems, and then also hopefully helping people faster or like more efficiently or like helping people get farther in some way like that's another access or something but yeah really like realistically i think if a therapist is sticking to a certain philosophy or model they are by definition cutting out certain clients and certain problems that they can they can help with and they're limiting what they can do for a client because they will end therapy once the, the person is healthy which is probably we find this is what most people want when they go to therapists like they want to stop at that point but it's, it's in some way likely a limitation on, on like you know the therapeutic process that like coaches don't have to deal with because the the expectations of coaching are different. Yeah, I'd say if I were to comment on what I think like the progression into becoming skilled and becoming a great coach would look like, you know, depending on whether I would consider myself that or not, mm-hmm. I think that I could at least say that for people who are going in that direction is, you know, even deep exploration and expansion of understanding within you know your metaphysical uh, mm. understanding, your your cosmology, your understanding of sociology and social dynamics, and being able to interpret wider cultural context for people, yeah, yeah. things like that. And I feel like that 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 to me feels like something that is ultra important for a coach to keep expanding into mm-hmm. learning, which can include philosophy and epistemology, yeah, a bunch yeah. of other things. And I'm not sure that that many therapists would think about it that way, or maybe many many coaches for that matter. Mm-hmm. So I agree. It's like the expansion, ideally the expansion of the people that you can serve and the ways you can serve them, 
And then I do think like quote unquote efficiency will come from that. I mean, as you just become better, hopefully you can find different interventions that will just get people there quicker or in like a, maybe not just quicker, but like a, a more integrous way or something like that. But um, it's interesting because if the, the original sort of prompt about all of this was about someone searching or trying to assess yeah. a relationship or searching for a therapist, one thing that I have seen out there is a bunch of therapists who have like all these modalities, yeah. right? And then my, my quick conclusion from that, I'm not sure if your average person would conclude the same, is like, oh, they're not good because they're not a specialist in anything. And I'm wondering if, if that's like a normal trope out there. Right, right. So I think specialists in therapy can be really, really not. Right, right. Like, like if, if a therapist has spent like 15 years doing hypnotherapy, hopefully they're really good at hypnotherapy. Right. And if you if you are the kind of person with the kind of problem who would be helped by hypnotherapist, like that would be fantastic for you. Right. But if you're not, I don't know if they can help well, you. What's interesting though is like, let's say I'm I'm like, okay, I have this issue that keeps recurring. I think it's related to something. So so my prior would be, okay, I'm going to go find someone who only does that. Mm -hmm. But it could be the case that someone who does that and a bunch of other things would actually be better at helping you with that yeah. thing. I mean, I, I think most, uh, this is the thing where again, like I think most therapists do CBT wrong. Like I've seen most therapists do CBT. I've heard people talk about what CBT was like for them and I just think they're doing it wrong. Uh, and like, and like maybe my concept of wrong is not like matching with like the right, official. Can we hear it real quick? Okay, sure. So, so like most people seem to think that cognitive behavioral therapy is like, you have a negative thought and then you write the negative thought out and then you write a positive thought or like, a, like you just, you find Yeah, like I've this, heard this. I was like, like we're not how? capering over experts. Yeah, this is a ridiculous <laughs> way to do this. This is like the worst thing you could possibly do or something. Like it's like, maybe like, I don't know, there's some people who plausibly are just actually helped by platitudes, right? If you just say, like, I have the thought that I am stupid. Maybe some people actually help by saying like, no, I am smart. I don't know. Oh, this is like obviously a super oversimplification. But like in my experience, actual good CBT is like treating these negative thoughts as hypotheses, framing them as hypotheses instead of like taking for granted that they're true, which is what people in these in 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 uh, anxious anxiety or depression or something right. like, tend to do. Uh, and then like finding evidence, you know, against them if possible, asking for evidence from friends or family members, finding exceptions, all these different kind of thing. And then like weighing like how much of this actually relates to the truth of the, of the thing. Like maybe the thing is true in some way. Yeah. If you think to yourself, I'm stupid, and then you you have this like recurring negative thought of how stupid you are. There's a way in which like this could just be because you are thinking of it in terms of like you find all this evidence that you're actually like I don't know really academically skilled in all these different ways. You're like okay, it's not that I'm stupid. Uh, it's that I'm bad at math. Now the thought is transmuted from I'm stupid to I'm bad at math. Right. And then you can look further into that. It's like oh you're actually bad at math, or you're just really bad at like calculus two or something. You know, and then like you're like okay, maybe I'm not actually bad at math. I'm just bad at calculus two or something. And then it's like yeah, you can just like continue to find find to some core truth that might be underneath this, this negative thought. And like, this is a much more understandable, leverageable, something you want, like, like truth about yourself than the, the blanket negativity that it was like kind of like papering over all your thoughts and like your perspective. And this can be anything from like, I'm a bad friend. Like maybe you're a bad friend once in a while. I don't know. Let's figure it out. Like, right. Like this, this frame on these things is like, treat them as hypotheses and figure out like whether, like to what degree they're true, if they're true. As a technical point, yeah, the the evidence is the best evidence. So, in my experience, the best evidence is experiential. Yeah, yeah, is that same. Yeah, yeah, like when you when you can when you can take this from just like writing these thoughts out into like actually 
feeling them or experiencing them differently right. too. Or running experiments right. in exactly. real life. Exactly. Yeah. Like that is that is the the really where a lot of the transformative work gets done. And this is like there's a thing that I say sometimes, which is joking, like every everything of basically CBT, just in different ways, like coherence therapy and, and like I mean, there's obviously there's like you know, trauma-focused CBT and and dialectic behavioral therapy, which is like slightly different. Like there's, there's, there's different like recurring, there's like this recurring schema that every that like a lot of different modalities will, will use, which is this idea of like you can find these negative experiences, thoughts, feelings, whatever you want to call them, because they're different things, and overwrite them in some way yeah. by finding some truth or by experiencing something more detailed or something. And yeah, I think most therapists just do this badly. And like most experiences with therapy, therefore, are not like the ideal thing they should be doing or something. And so like the therapist for finding a skill. So I think sometimes the actual thing that is really valuable for a therapist to do is like learn CBT and also learn other things. And like maybe they'll use some CBT in those other things or maybe they'll use some other things in their CBT therapy. And like that, that enmeshment of ideas is better usually in my experience than just sticking to one model. Because if you're just sticking to one model, in my belief... And I don't know how confident I should be on this. Like the model is probably really suited to one certain kind of person, one certain kind of issue, but not as easily generalized if you're not in the in the frame of mind in which you can just say, okay, this is a tool that might be useful for this part of this thing. Here's another tool that's useful for this part of the thing. Well, especially because a lot of these models also have philosophical and metaphysical backdrops mm -hmm. that could be incorrect or could not fit that particular context. Like if I think about IFS, for example, internal family systems, by the way. I think I think it it makes some pretty big assumptions that especially like Canon IFS or something mm -hmm. like that. That I don't particularly bring into parts work that right. I that right. I do with people. Right. Because I just like don't feel like all of it is applicable mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. I think like the age of the part is probably really important for like trauma or something. Mm -hmm. But outside of that it can be like very unnecessary or something. So like somebody who's only sticking to that, I have had some clients say like, um, I've done IFS with a client, or I'm sorry, done IFS with a, a coach or a therapist, and all they wanted to do was like IFS with me. <laughs> like I had this problem in real life and they just wanted me to like have my, my parts talk to each other. Yeah. And that can be, yeah, really like really limiting where I feel like having parts plus a bunch of other modalities is actually like really, really powerful. Yeah. It's funny that you say they said have parts talk to each other because I think I could be wrong about this, but I think in Canon IFS your parts shouldn't be talking to each other. Oh like, yeah, like, like, maybe I yeah maybe I'm not familiar with even that. Explicitly, I think it's like they're not meant to talk to each other or something, which to me is crazy because from my experience of, of my, my my own internal family system like dynamics, like talk, parts talk to each other all the time and it's great. Like like my parts talk yeah. to each other is a huge it, huge benefit. And it's like the cause of a lot of distress as well. For a lot of they, they can't sure. help but do that. Yeah yeah yeah. Okay okay. Yeah, we should, I, I want to look into that more because, like, I I didn't know that, and and if that's the case, then that to me is even more of an art. I, I could be misremembering. This is yeah, like yeah. one of one of the ones that like became major after the the original canon or something. But like, well, obviously, everyone has their different ideas of what these things are supposed to be or something. Right. To me, this is just yeah, these are just different maps. You're just collecting maps. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Right. So for the person that sees uh, someone that that does a whole lot of things or a specialist, I guess like hard to draw conclusions just based on those lists. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's useful sometimes to have a sense of like, okay, my problem is vaguely about something in my past. Maybe this is one of those weird, sorry, I'm, I'm so biased against uh, psychodynamic therapy. Uh, maybe this is one of those cases where 
uh, psychodynamic therapy would be good for me. If my problem is like something about my interpersonal family uh, like dynamics, maybe a systemic therapist would be great for me. A marriage and family therapist, right, would be good good for me. I have like some issues with like meaning in life and ennui and all these different things, and like maybe an existential therapist would be good for me. And like knowing that, this is why I wrote the philosophy of therapy because like I feel like that can be useful for people. And so the modalities can kind of point in those directions a little bit. It's like, ah, this person is doing internal family systems. They have some sense of existential therapy and some systemic training, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like this kind of thing could be useful for people to like match their problem with the, with the thing. But ultimately, like what modality you're using, we've seen this time and again in like research is like, it's just, this is less of the indicator than having a good fit with the, with the therapist that you feel or coach that you feel is like, you know, you yeah. inspires that hope and optimism and has that, that emotional connection and feels feelings of trust. Uh, and then... After that, the match of, of like what kind of therapy they're doing, I think, is, is like actually relevant. But up until that point, it just, just doesn't matter as much. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I, I have one or two clients where I feel like the the rapport is so strong that actually they teach me things sometimes. So so they will decide that they need to investigate something further. Yeah, yeah. And then they will just go do it because they're really motivated in that way. Mm. And they bring stuff to me and like new yeah. modalities and philosophies that then I look into or something like that. Yeah, I I really appreciate one of the things I really appreciate about working with EAs and initialists actually specifically is that they seem more motivated than most clients to actually just go out do their own research and bring it back to me and and like now I'm learning something new myself. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really cool. Something I wanted to mention was that for anyone who wants to learn more about like what makes therapy effective. Scott Miller is uh, someone who's done really good research into this this kind of field and this question. There's a great Clear Thinking podcast episode uh, where he was interviewed. So yeah, episode 70 of Clear Thinking um, has an interview with Scott Miller, and I, I, I agree with like something like 90% of what he says. There's a few differences of opinion. I, like, I do think modality is actually more important than he seems to, but I do agree that like for the most part, like the actual thing that matters is the connection with the client and therapist, and that getting good feedback from the client is like the main way that people in this field can grow. Yes. I think it applies to coaching too. I have not always done this. Like when I was, you know, I, I, the, the, I had wished in my career that I had done more session by session feedback from clients because I think it would have been really valuable. And it's like one of those things I, I started, I started doing later in my, in my work. And like, it feels like this is in fact, like a really valuable thing for a therapist to do. If you are looking for a therapist, it's going to be really hard to find a therapist that does this because most of them don't. But most of them don't solicit feedback. feedback every now and then. Yeah, no. At, at best, usually there's like an out, out. Yeah, there's like the outro survey or something. Yeah. That's interesting. All right, so money. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about any of the models that you have around how much therapy should be yeah. costing. Yeah. This is... And maybe what your... Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah. And I realized this, so I can just kick it off. Go for it. I realized this because I was doing, you know, I, I had offered trials to about a dozen people, it's more like 15. And those people, I asked them questions about their associations with how valuable it was. And I gave them a few different prompts, like if you were making two to five X more income, like what would you pay? What would you pay if it was by yourself? What would you pay if it was handled by your company or organization or something like that? What is the just value of it? Just like, you know, plainly stated. And I got these like, cr- this crazy wild variation. So just to give you an idea, I had one trial where a person said that over the course of four or five sessions, it was worth like $40,000 to them, 40 or 50, completely fucked up my data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy outlier. 
And then some people being like, yeah, I think this is worth like 50 bucks uh, an hour mm-hmm. or, or, you know, something. And just having that variance and being like, I have no idea what to make yeah, of this yeah, at yeah. all. So I am curious, I guess, maybe from the perspective of I'm a person, you know, looking for a coach or a therapist or something, let's go with the therapist. How should I think about how much to pay? Yeah. So I have a lot of weird artifacts in this area because American uh, healthcare system and how it relates to therapy and stuff like this is like a, a whole, a whole different thing. There's a really fantastic series of posts by, I want to say Sidria. I don't know how, if I'm pronouncing that right, Sidreal. She's written some fantastic things on a bunch of different things. One of them was like just doing a deep dive into therapy and the cost of therapy and how hard it is for therapists to like make a living in, mm. in America, particularly with the way healthcare works and stuff like that. And the, the thing that I've noticed is most therapists these days that I know are moving away from insurance and going to, to self-pay uh, as a practitioner. And this means that most therapists that I know charge anywhere between 100 to $350 an hour, which is a fairly wide range. Yeah. There are some therapists who are like just starting out, the practice I know who charge something like $70, $80, and then like very quickly would jump to like 100 150 or something like that. Because this is why actually I did fairly, I, when I started uh, private practice, I was like, 100 seems like a good round number. I don't know. This seems fine. Uh, and like I was, I, I did this for like a while, and like some some therapists were like, you charge, you only charge $100 an hour? And I was like, yeah, is that is that bad? And they're like, that's way too low for what you can get away with, like what you know your experience and like your you know that you're just a great thing, blah blah blah, you know. And I was like, okay, yeah, I guess I should charge more. Uh, well, and was was part of that decision like how much effort and energy you felt like you needed to put in to make? So so this was the thing where I was like noticing like okay, you know, if I'm actually pricing this at the ability to like see you know caseloads, let's say 15 clients a week and not have to feel rushed on like the paperwork or, or uh, the research that I do or something like that to make each each client feel like I'm really like attending to them. What felt like a decent amount of, of take-home pay basically after taxes and all that kind of stuff was like the kind of thing that I tried to evaluate it on. It's not really the amount of energy that it costs for me, but like I'm a mutant when it comes to energy like levels for things like this. Like it's very hard for me to feel burnt out by, by anything mm. um, at all. So... Yeah, that's the thing that I just like I just probably put out there. That's a different. Yeah, yeah. Like the thing that started upping my price a little bit. Well, I mean, also I should note that when I first started doing therapy, private practice for the community, like I said, I had some clients on the side first um, that I was seeing both in the community and outside of it uh, that I charged uh, money for. Uh, and then, like in 2020, is when the first grant that I ever got kicked in. It was like forty thousand dollars for the whole year to work with the EA and Nationality community for free. So I basically just saw all my clients for free, except for like two, I think, who insisted on paying outside the grant or something. And I saw all, all my clients for free and just like worked basically as many clients as I could get for, the, for that year as like, a, as like a test of like, is this a thing that's sustainable for the community or something? And it worked pretty well. Like I didn't feel like I was burned out or over, overloaded or anything. Uh, but also there was a sense where like the more people were like aware of it, the more clients I started getting. And like this was like a non-sustainable trajectory. Right. Um, and like after this, the client, the, the, the year was over, I was offered another grant. I was like, no, you know, let me try doing this without the grant money and just see if I could, if I could make a living off of this without a grant. I uh, like maybe put the grant towards some other therapist in the community who's like working on the same kind of thing we're trying to. And I, I found like a price point of something like $150 per hour seemed to work pretty well, especially because it, I was taking some clients pro bono. There were some clients who were like, you know, programmers and stuff making ridiculous amounts of money. Sorry. By my perspective, ridiculous and so funny. Um, and, and for them, like, they seem totally fine with spending 150 even $200 an hour. 
And then other people who I was seeing who were like working in nonprofit work and other students or something, and they didn't really have an income. So I was like seeing them for free or for, for reduced, reduced prices. And that worked pretty well for a while too. Uh, just kind of having this, this like uh, sense of, you know, balancing my feelings of like how much work am I doing versus how much does it feel like worth, worth it or something to me. And then like how much could my clients pay without me feeling like I had way too many clients, which is also a useful metric eventually where it's just like, I have like a 30 person wait list. This is not sustainable. Right. Uh, I have to like increase my price to try to reduce the amount of people I'm seeing or something. And then, like, more grant money came in for, like, specific populations in the community and stuff like that, and that, like, helps me, like, portion my time uh, more directly based on, like, where the grant money was coming from, because otherwise it's kind of, like, arbitrarily picking, like, you know, a number and hoping that, like, the most work that you can, like, the most valuable work you can do is the people who can afford it, which doesn't seem right. Like, I don't, I just don't think that's how it works. I think for most therapists, when you, when you, when you see a therapist who's charging something like $300 an hour, when you're looking for a therapist who's charging $300 an hour, like... You want to hope that you're getting someone who's like really, really good with lots of experience and like really skillful. And you might be, but you also might just be seeing a therapist who is like, they've just reached a point in their career where they have the contacts and the and the and the reference pool and stuff like that, yeah. where they can you know get away with charging that much because otherwise they're just going to have too many clients. Or you might be seeing someone who's like working at the nine to five job at a clinic. And they're taking a few clients on the side, and that's what they're with their their extra hours. That, that's what would make it worth it, yeah. Exactly, and I, and I totally get why this is a, why this is a thing. I guess my final summation of this point specific one is something like: I don't think there is a very good correlation between price of therapist and skill of therapist. Mm. Uh, I think there's probably a, uh, a correlation between price of therapist and experience the therapist has. I think this is way adjusted by like price, uh, cost of living in the area that they live in. Very like different countries are going to have massively different costs for therapy because of this. Most of the therapists I know who charge three hundred fifteen an hour live in like New York or or you know the Bay Area or something like that. And yeah, this is just like being like living in Miami has set my expectations a certain way that I think I'm sure like a therapist working in like a more rural area, for example, would just be very have a different sense of things. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that the so so let's say if it's you're you're just thinking about clients. And they're thinking about what the value of this could be. So, so a lot of it's mm-hmm. like, basically, what can you expect from the market, mm-hmm. depending on like a market approximation of what's reasonable based on where people live and mm-hmm. and like how they're pricing things. But also maybe helping people get a handle on like how much should I value this within the context of my income? Yeah, yeah, or something like this, which is really hard given that we don't have a specific person to be like giving advice to right now, yeah. not sitting across from us. It's funny that you mentioned earlier about the, the disparity in what the clients would say, because yeah, I've experienced this too. Uh, I mean, yeah. I know, I know some people would say like, yeah, like this, this thing that was we that we worked through is like easily like like eighty percent of my income. Like it seems like exactly. I think I think some people it's an income thing yeah. or you might think that that difference is just about aggregate income. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's about their relationship to money. For sure. And I think it's about their relationship to the value of the thing that happened. Yeah. As well. Like it's it's impossible to send price to. Because right. people's experience is like my life has just gotten way easier and, and better. And for some people, it's like, I have a life now, and I didn't before. Right. Like, how do you put a price on that? Right, right. And then some people I w- will tell me something like, this transformed a lot. It was really important, but I just sort of have a box of what's reasonable to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is pretty interesting because it's like nothing could break out of that box no matter how like transformative it is right, to some yeah. extent. I'm, that's fair. I have a similar thing with like healthcare costs for myself. I was like, yeah, you know, I should probably... You know, I go to the dentist regularly, and like I, I, I take care of my teeth pretty well, so I don't, I don't like 
really feel like I have many uh, issues in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but like every so often, I have to switch dentists for one reason or another because of insurance things or whatever. And I'm just like, ooh, this doesn't seem, it seems like outside of my box for how much a dentist should cost. Right. Or something. Yeah, like, right. Like the service hasn't changed, hopefully. Like I still like keep maintaining like the clean teeth or something, which I value quite highly because I'm willing to spend some money for it. But like when you're talking about something even less concrete than that, right? It's like that box feels like it makes sense to have a box for this kind of thing. And it's like protective and useful to have a box for like how much something should cost. But it makes it hard for people sometimes to sync up with what it means then to value the service yeah. uh, and all. Yeah, and and I've had some other coaches say that they rec- they they want to like push a narrative recommendation that someone should be willing to pay something like five percent of their annual income mm-hmm. for a thing like this, and I just like I think that that is more. It just doesn't seem like good guidance to me. It seems mm-hmm. like more self serving to recommend. Like I understand why they would want to anchor it in terms of it can be a really nice like mimetic reference or something out there similar to like tithing of like 10% or something to just say like oh yeah this type of thing or or even like health insurance shouldn't go what beyond 10% usually health insurance I'm not sure what the what normal what people normally think about that in the US but like yeah when it comes to this setting something like a percentage seems still kind of weird to me it's it's the thing about it is that it, it probably works really well for people who make a lot of money but not so well for people who don't because like five five percent of of thirty five thousand dollars a year is like really it's like the the, the push on Poland this is going to be what makes it worthwhile for the for the client. What is it displacing? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because yeah. like if we if if I take for example a hundred dollars an hour as the baseline for a therapist, for like what what like what the hour is worth to therapists because it's not just an hour, it's also like paperwork and, and research hopefully, you know, that's being done too. If you assume that you're seeing the person uh right like fifty two times a year, which is probably not what you're actually seeing them for say it's like 48, 48 times a year. Weekly. Yeah, weekly, right. And then we assume that a client, uh, you have a client base of 15. This is like a lot of money for, for a therapist. This is like 72,000 before taxes. Uh, this is a lot of money for, for, for most therapists do not make this much money. This is 72,000 uh, before taxes. After taxes, this is probably closer to like 50. 50,000, yeah, roughly. And when I was working at a clinic, this is, you know, it's a nonprofit clinic, but still like I was making something like 34,000 when I started. Uh, with my license, I started making like 40000 in crisis work before taxes. And for most therapists, this is like, this is good. This is like, if you, if you can get $100 an hour for, for clients and you're seeing 15 clients a week consistently, which is very difficult, as that post that I mentioned and maybe you can put in the show notes or something, uh, would say like, this is this is like a good deal or something. But most therapists can't maintain 15 clients a week because it's very hard to have a 15-client workload consistently every week. Uh, yeah, that's most, a lot. Yeah, most most clients don't don't show up every every week consistently. Scheduling fifteen clients a week is difficult because of like how much time you have available to schedule them. Yeah, uh, like the people, like some people are available in the evenings, some people are available in the mornings, some people are available in the afternoons. It's a really weird job to do that kind of thing. Uh, and I imagine if the coaching, it's like there's probably even less of that feeling of like, oh, I can't miss a session. I don't know how how often people miss coaching sessions, but like. Yeah. Not not that often, okay. but then again, I don't do it weekly. Okay, yeah. So I think that would probably make a big difference. Yeah. Where uh, missing a fortnightly or a monthly session or something is, is a much bigger deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And usually people can plan it so far in advance. Like, I think there's probably some sense in which, like, technology has shifted how this works. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe it's still pretty conventional, like, 
with therapy mm -hmm. in the U.S. and people kind of like call a clinic or then yeah. schedule it on the way out or something. Mm -hmm. But for me, I, I use Calendly yeah, or yeah. something like that, and people can just like choose a time. And and I'm willing to bet that like the majority of therapists don't use a thing like Calendly, mm -hmm. but I could be wrong. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get this too much on myself, but it feels worth saying something like, my advice to people is like, don't pay more than $200 per hour for a therapist. Because like, I don't know, I'm sure the therapists out there are better than I am. And like that, it would make sense for people to charge more if they feel like they're, they're worth more. Like I'm not saying that every therapist who charges more than $200 an hour is like not valuing their time appropriately to their life. But like, I would hope that you can find a therapist that's good without paying $200 an hour. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And like insofar as I've charged that much, sometimes it's literally because it's like this is the hours past the 40-hour work a week mark or something. Where it's like this is part of the issue also. If a, if, a, if a person is working overtime, they're going to usually expect more for the, for the dollar per hour. That's how I've uh, measured it for myself. And obviously, you know, you want to be upfront with your clients and be like, hey, this is how much I charge. Does this work for you kind of thing? And then like if they can't afford it, maybe you can scale down, which I've done fairly yeah. often. Yeah. And once in a while for bono work is a, is a thing that feels feels valuable to do. But like it's rough not knowing as a client really like what to expect for, for the price point. And I, and I get that that really sucks particularly for people who don't have money for it. It's because it gets expensive very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, coaching is, is, is interestingly different in this sense where you could make a proposition as a coach that a certain amount of work could result in materially more pay. I think this is like, there are probably like occupational therapists or something, I don't know out there, but this is like a less direct proposition yeah. you can make. Yeah. And I don't, I don't do that. I sort of like, I guess when I'm talking to people about what I could help them with, I imply that things could be going much better and then they, they can imply, they can infer from that that materially it would get better. But, I guess I have helped some small business owners where I was like, I really think I could help you strategize with this. Mm -hmm. If it goes better at all, then the amount of money that you paid me is like nothing compared to the amount that you're going to generate or something. But I have to feel confident in that, yeah. right? And that needs to be true for them. And that, that I think is like a basis for being a lot more flexible for what to charge. And that's that's kind of funny because I think relative to really deep changes or resolving through like big issues in, in certain areas mm -hmm. of your life, that kind of thing actually feels less valuable, mm -hmm. but it's easier to ask for more of because it's like easier to, to, to like compare materially mm -hmm. or something like that, which I think is pretty funny. Mm -hmm. It's like you, yeah, I, I probably would value much more resolving a trauma of some kind that like lets me rest easier on the day to day yeah, and yeah. not be so in fight or flight mode or something most yeah. of the time. Yeah. But it's just really hard to like say to someone, it's likely that your earnings over time or your income or the ability to like be much less on tilt and be able to like find a better job will likely increase. And so therefore this investment is is worth it. Even yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And it's so high variance in the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. It's too such that like I, I have some clients who still reach out to me like years later and are just like, hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm really grateful for your time. Yeah, I'm still like these thing updates on my life. Really appreciate like you know all your whatever. Like it was it was really helpful for me. Thank thanks again for everything. And like I really appreciate getting those messages and like it feels good to get those messages. Obviously, but then you know I don't get that from every client I have. So like some of my clients are just like. Well, I hope I was helpful at least for a little while, but I don't know. I don't know how much I actually I was helpful to them in, in the long run. 
And so like, if I tried to set an expectation even for myself of like, okay, well, I'm going to help people increase their life satisfaction by X amount or their, their productivity by Y amount or whatever it is. Like, what am I doing? Am I taking the average of like my expectations from like the outcome surveys of like all the people I've ever seen or something? Or like, what, what, like, what would I advise someone to do to like set this expectation for how effective they are? I don't, I don't know. It gets me- very messy very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Like a marriage, you know, people come to me sometimes with, with the relationship issues and they want to save their relationship with their marriage or something. And it's like, how much do you value your marriage is like a weird thing to ask people like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I guess for somebody who's approaching this, a, a thing I would say to them is that if they have a box for how much they should pay, if you were to run some kind of experiment to see whether this thing is worth it, it's likely the case that you should expand the bounds of that box just for the experiment. Mm. And then also throughout the course of that experiment would be a recommendation of mine. Four or five sessions, you basically like part ways with that money. Even if you're not paying five sessions up front, you say like, okay, I'm fine losing this money, which can be really hard for a low income mm-hmm. individual, I understand. But like, I am parting with this share of money. I'm not going to think about it now. And I'm just going to like try to engage in the session because one of the one of the biggest issues that I found is that when people were sort of teetering on the edge of can I afford this or not, and I could tell, and I worked through a plan with them, mm-hmm. and it was like on the high end, but they were like, okay, let's try it. They were trying to harvest value out of every minute, mm-hmm. and they were just like approaching it in this very, in this way that I don't think is conducive to consolidating mm-hmm. a lot of benefits and like really immersing yourself in what's going on. So it'd be like have the experiment, expand the bounds. You know, not a crazy amount, but like a reasonable amount, whatever that would be. And then like wave goodbye to that money and just see how it goes. You know, when you pick your head up after five sessions and see like, does this redefine my relationship to whether this is worth it or not? That's one like suggestion of an experiment I often, I often will say to people who are just like completely at a loss. They're like, okay, I'm talking to you. You're offering this amount. I've talked to other coaches. I just don't. I don't know upon what basis to make this this choice. And I think it's just highly personalized, and so I try to get them to construct some kind of um, experiment that is abstractly set up, maybe similar to like the three dimensions that we talked about, mm-hmm. but also can be modified for their own situation in some way. Yeah, it's also definitely more difficult with therapists sometimes because. Based on where you live and your the country that you're in or the state that you're in, in the U.S., there's sometimes there's like actual rules around like transparency or price upfront and, and and things like that, and, and like it could be hard to negotiate. Well, I I don't think most therapists think about it in these terms at all, right? It's just like this is my rate. Maybe they have an adjustable rate based on income at best. That's basically it. Uh, and if you have insurance, obviously that's a, that's a different thing. But the idea of like being that flexible with it and like treating it like that, I think is like a thing that coaches can do more than therapists. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I segment, maybe, yeah, I guess if there are laws against that, that would be tricky and dealing with insurance would make it additional mm-hmm. tricky. But I segment between, you know, income, need, like what industry they're in and, you know, so if they're like EA, nonprofit, something mm-hmm. like that, I'll charge less. I have a EA rate or something. Yeah. I have a rate for people that work at, Twitter or whatever, right, right, right. and and so on and so forth. And I guess that is that is not legal for some therapists in, in some situations. I don't know. It, yeah, it depends on it depends on the location basically yeah. and, and what they're what the what the rules are there. Yeah. Yeah. Well you you were also talking about okay, where they live and the cost of living. Yeah. Also an interesting thing that came up that that 
I've thought about before is whether the client or whatever endorses the lifestyle choices of the therapist mm -hmm. as insofar as it's reflected back at them. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's say Hillary Clinton has a, a therapist, right? Mm -hmm. She probably would be very suspicious if this therapist is charging $50 an hour. Hmm. Like Hillary Clinton might want a yeah. therapist that charges a thousand bucks and is like, this indicates a lot more to me about the type of person and their lifestyle and possibly how good they are or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm like happy to pay that sure. in some ways. Yeah. So I I also thought that people should should think about that too, mm -hmm. where, as you say, like skilled therapists probably exist at the hundred you know seventy eighty hundred dollar range, and then this could actually be more talking towards the those therapists that are thinking about like getting off of the insurance payment mm -hmm. kind of plans, being like actually if you raise your prices you might be signaling to a different type of client, if you care about that, that you have a certain lifestyle and they might be willing mm -hmm. to pay that. Absolutely. It, it, it does feel worth noting, though, from the ethical perspective, that like most people who have hard problems, I think, it, it's just completely disconnected from their income, right? And and like part of the issue with the insurance thing that's happening in America is that therapy is becoming less affordable for a lot of people. And the ability to charge large amounts of money as a therapist like and still make a good living it's like really beneficial for the therapist it's really beneficial for the people who are able to afford that and i think it is making it harder to find good therapists at the lowest level just because of the the way that insurance used to be the kind of buffer for therapists to to, to charge like like a decent amount and like yeah i, I don't know like you know it's it's a, it's a thing that i've noticed because you know back when i worked for the community stuff like this is just these are entire populations who just would not be able to afford hundred dollars an hour. Even is there anything precluding therapists from charging like one group of people two fifty and then one group of people seventy five? Right? Yeah, like, yeah. You 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 have to. So again, this depends on your location. In some states, you have to have a one rate. Period. That's crazy. And in other places, you can have a, a single rate, but like you, and then you can allow you're allowed to adjust downward based on need. And then there's like certain provisions in some places particularly for like emergency sessions or something like that, where it's like, you know, if someone's having a financial hardship or something, then you can, you can like adjust based on that. But you can't say up front something like, I charge, you know, $100 for, for this problem and, and like $200 for this problem or something in some states. And some states you can. It's like really weird. Yeah. Is the rationale like protection for people who can't afford it for that kind of thing? I think but one plausible rationale, another one, in, and like I would have to look at the actual... Yeah. rules for each for each location but like in some in some places the rationale is like just like making sure that it's not something like arbitrary like been like changed up front or like, it's like it's not arbitrary to, to like discrimination or something like that like that's interesting yeah i can understand that i can understand that but i also think that it really removes maybe therapists could like coach yeah and do like private consulting in order to subsidize for low-income clients it gets really, it gets really tricky when, hey, when when you once you're a therapist, if you start calling yourself a coach, and you can't, it, can't do both. It gets, it gets, let's just say the 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 great eye of Sauron might might turn towards you. That's too bad. That's really too bad because because that would be like a really creative, flexible way for people that are not discriminating mm -hmm. or or you know trying to be ethical about it mm -hmm. for us to deal with a broken healthcare system like that. Yeah, where where I do that, I I will charge some people like some people. Well, all the people that I work with know I have this window. They also know that I adjust it. Mm -hmm. And 
some of them are like well aware, like I will say to them, because you're not working in nonprofit, mm -hmm. I'm charging you this. Mm -hmm. And they will know that I'm probably like lowering it even more for certain people in that space. Mm -hmm. And they're like fine with that, mm -hmm. you know. I could see how that would lend to certain types of discrimination in some cases, but mm -hmm. but that's a really great way of like being able to just take care sure. of everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Damn, that's too bad. We stumbled upon something that makes me pretty sad. It's yeah. like yeah. that was trivial for me and I didn't realize how hard that is. Like for the people I really wanted to work with who mm -hmm. couldn't afford it, I could and I could still have a nice lifestyle and mm -hmm. I could still just like be very flexible. And I, it wasn't on my radar that that would be difficult for a therapist. And, and again, I, this is a very American-centric view. I don't even know. I don't. I don't know half of how it works in other countries. I looked into the UK a little bit. It's really weird there. Like you don't need. And there's a whole can of worms. Like this is there's all different different topics. You know, to talk about. That. Okay. So so why do you anchor on two hundred? You, you you threw out a number. Oh yeah, yeah. That that's the latest number that I went to, for myself once I was working more than 40 hours a week of like, how much is the, is the extra hour of work worth to me? Okay. And like, what, is, what does it mean for me to take on another client at this point, basically? Okay. Compared to the other work I could be doing, the other, the other thing I could be doing with that time. I do that yeah. too. Yeah. And that, that, that's, that's the number that I ended up reaching before I, I basically capped out and, and like, uh, I've been, I've been reducing my, my therapy workload somewhat to do other things like onboarding therapists into the community and stuff like that. But like a lot of the expectations I have for this is just that like, if someone is looking for a therapist, if they think to themselves, oh, I have to find a therapist who's like, you know, $300 an hour to be good, I just don't think that's true. Yeah. Like, I, I've, I've known therapists who are really good who charge $100 an hour or some, whatever the equivalent would be in, in, a, in their own currency. Uh, I know good therapists who charge 150 I know good therapists who charge like 80 And not for long, usually the 81 because again, like, that, that side of your post is really good. Like, I, 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 you really, like, if you have any interest at all in like, why is it so hard to find a therapist and or why is it so weird for therapists to like find the right price to charge for something to make a living like these posts are fantastic for this yeah it's like it's really really well done yeah it's just it gets it gets really hard for me to to with a straight face tell someone like oh yeah you you should you know be paying whatever five hundred dollars an hour for therapy right. this is just seeming way way off but with a straight face i would say it's likely that you will find better results between 150 and 200. Is that wrong? It seems it seems fair to say something like so. The thing that I think is actually happening is that you're you're when you when you raise the price above 100 and and above 150 even, what you're doing is you're selecting for therapists who have, for lack of a better phrase, better things to do with their time, right? Yeah. Like either either better things from their perspective, like to make money for themselves, or better things than like the effectiveness of what they could do with their time otherwise for like their own happiness. Oh, this is such an important thing. Other jobs yeah. and something like that, like you had the self care, whatever the thing is, right? Like you as a therapist, like you're either you're either working a small caseload for a lot of money, each client. Yep. Uh, or you're working a full caseload for a decent amount of money for each client or whatever. Or you're like you're doing like three different You're maxing out. Yeah. And, you're, and, and like right, and like like there are people who work on like online platforms like BetterHelp or whatever who make a certain amount from their BetterHelp clients and then they charge like extra for any client beyond that because it's like it's like on top of their their, their BetterHelp clientele and like they can afford to do that. And then there's other people who are like, you know, their work is is like crisis work or whatever like I used to do. They're working like 40 plus hours a week on, on crisis work for not that much money. And if they're doing clients on the side, it's like it's a supplemental income thing for them and they might value that more than they would uh, other things. And then there's people who are like, you know, maybe they're really far in their career and they're like, 
writing books and like doing seminars or whatever. Right. And if they're still doing therapy, like it's it's for them like to keep in touch with the the clientele and like sit the boots on the feet, keep their feet on the ground, basically, which is what I I believe for myself is like really valuable too. And like what they charge is anyone's guess. Like they might charge like a hundred dollars just because like for them it does it's not that important because they're making enough money for the other things. Or they might charge like four hundred dollars an hour because for them it's like that's what their extra hour is worth because of all the other stuff they're busy doing. Right, right. And I have this like personal bias for for coaches at least, and and this is probably because I fall in this bucket that people who are only seeking to be a coach and kind of max out all of their time. Mm-hmm as being a coach are probably going to over the like medium to long term be less skilled overall and that could affect like the the price points that they're willing to to charge people at yeah yeah so the ones that like yeah want to write books or they want to you know build their organization or or do something like that i feel like they they realize that they they hit a limit where they need to scale back and then they often deal with that with price sensitivity. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless, you know, there are some clients that they really like that or, or they want to keep it. Like, uh, unless those other things, as you say, will pay them a lot of money or enough money, in which case they could they could charge very little. But I would imagine that the, the move is often to raise the prices with the what few hours you have yeah. often yeah. Uh, so that you can, you know, control the demand there a bit. Yeah. and. The people that want to be there really want to be there and presumably feel like $300 an hour is like fine for them and they're willing to pay it. That's just like a nice set of s- small relationships to still be in touch with, mm-hmm. I, I suppose, if you're in that position. And, and then the people that have more stuff to do, okay, this could be just like being a, an assumption that's wrong, mm-hmm. more, more things that they want to grow into. Those are the kinds of people, I would assume, that are likely to engage in pulling from multiple yeah. multiple yeah. modalities and expanding their practice and all kinds of stuff. And the people who are sort of like locked into this perpetual, like I'm charging $80 an hour, so that, ne- that means I need to do like, I don't know, 40 hours a week of coaching, or like just an insane amount of coaching, mm-hmm. are probably not reading around, mm-hmm. doing research, mm-hmm. you know, expanding the practice a lot. And I feel like that's really unfortunate for them because you just need to work less in order to get better at this in some sense. And like you could become really good at certain moves if you drill and you like, you know, work with people for dozens of hours on end each week and you only do that. But I also think that could be yeah, quite limiting. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the thing I said earlier about like the non non correlating price and skill, like I like realistically I know that's not actually true, but you know, there's a lot of ways in which being more skilled therapist might lead to like more referrals from clients and then like over like higher higher uh caseload and then you have to like raise your price to lower demand like like you said like, like this is just like the basic economics of it but i just like the thing that feels important is something like not feeling like the only therapist that can help with something are the ones that oh, is that expensive yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah definitely definitely um, it, would, it would be like i like to propose i know this is like a big resource investment and time investment for people but like suggesting that people try three mm-hmm. therapists or so of varying you know cost interesting yeah and and seeing costs and and different like you know um training and and whatever just to get a sense of what the difference could be mm-hmm. and that's hard and it's hard because you have different problems at different times and it's hard because maybe carrying on multiple coaching or therapy relationships is just like tricky for various reasons but doing something like that in six months or something 
I think some people just like see two people or maybe the entire time they ever do therapy. Right. Two two or three. Maybe. And I feel like that's just such a small sample size, it's really hard to know anything yeah. Being, yeah. Yeah, with that. So I, what I'd like to create is maybe a blog post arming people with questions that they can ask the therapist mm-hmm. to get a sense of why they charge what they charge. And uh, and I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, like maybe therapists and, and coaches wouldn't like to be asked a thing like that. Most of them are not. I remember when I was doing my, my internship, there's this really cool thing that my professor would make us do. So this was the this is an internal uh, clinic at the, at the university, run by the university. It was like basically not for profit. We we charge like a nominal thing based on, on people's income, uh, and it would go to the the main maintenance of the facility. And despite the fact, despite that, like despite the fact we were students not making any money off of this, my supervising professor would actually have us walk the client out from our room to the front door and actually take the money from them directly and then turn around and hand it to the cashier, the, the, the person oh, at the front desk. Nice. She was like, I want you to get used to taking money from clients. Yeah. <laughs> because you as, like, I my general category of therapists are people who are not comfortable doing this. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, yeah, maybe they wouldn't like to be asked that. <laughs> All right, we got to, I guess we got to, we got to wrap? Yeah, it sounds, sounds like, in this, yeah, it's going to be a, a long episode in, in our case. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I I suppose thank you yeah, for growing up. It was fun. Yeah, enjoying it. It's interesting. I feel I feel like a lot of time went by, and I still feel like we skipped over quite a lot of can of worms that I could have gone into. For sure. Okay, that does it for this episode of Any Thoughts on Today with Damon Sassi. I'm T Barnett, and you are just listening to the show where you can overhear skilled practitioners, advisors, and guides of other sorts talk about their craft. You can find more on my website, tbarnett.com, more episodes, more about coaching, more about coaching training, and I hope to see you there. I hope to provide more episodes to your enjoyment in the future. Thanks for joining me today.